Hello, everybody. Good to see you all tonight. Thanks. Yeah, hi. Uh, as it says up there, my name is Stephen Crawford, and I'm USC Christian Challenge staff. Yes, it's a very accurate title up there. Uh, you'll have to uh, be patient with me tonight. I have a, a, for the last like four or five days, I've had a kind of a nagging cough. Uh, one of those like rattling like coughs where you start like breathing and it's just like, <gasps> uh, it's kind of been better today. Um, but if I start laughing or something, it like comes back really bad. So if you could try and refrain from making me laugh while I'm speaking, that'd be great. And I purposefully took all the jokes out of my message. And you guys know I usually am just nonstop cracking jokes the whole time. So tonight will be different. It'll be somber. Uh, so, um, just to give you a little bit, um, background where I'm at right now, uh, the last two weeks I've been absent from challenge. Two weeks ago, uh, I was on a Hawaii vacation with my parents. Like two years ago, they planned this like 40th anniversary trip for themselves and they invited their whole, all their kids along. Um, so I was on the island of Hawaii the week after spring break. I was there all week long, um, so it was a lot of fun. I'm sure my wife will be posting photos uh, on Facebook sometimes. So you can take a look at them. Um, I got a new cool straw hat that uh, blocks the rays of the sun and makes me look really cool, too. So uh, you can check that out. Uh, speaking of my wife, I know uh, a lot of you guys uh, probably think my wife is, like, mythological or something. Or <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining her uh, because... Uh, she hasn't really uh, been around Challenge, uh, I think, since the beginning of the year. Um, but she's very real. She exists. Uh, and she's great. Uh, she has uh, recently, um, well, I should give you a little context first. My wife is Russian. She's a Russian citizen. I met her in Russia on a mission trip in 2008. Uh, and we got to know each other over the course of the next, like, four or five years. We started dating, if you will. It was really more Skyping than dating, but we called it dating. Uh, in 2013, and we got married two years later. In 2015, she came over here. Uh, we've been working on immigration paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Very exciting. She recently went back to Russia to visit her family. Um, she was there for about a month back in February, uh, which was great for her, sad for me. Uh, but last week, uh, over, the, over the last couple of years, basically since we got married, um, or really even maybe a little bit further back, since around 2013, since we started dating, um, the relationship between our two countries, the United States and Russia, have kind of slowly and gradually deteriorated uh, and are actually getting a lot worse right now. Um, so I, I didn't uh, know that that was going to happen when I started dating her. I don't think it would have stopped me from <laughs> dating her if I had known that. Uh, but it was, it was not something that we anticipated being part of our marriage. Uh, in, in general, relationships between our two countries have been uh, pretty good. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a reminder that not very long ago, it, our relationship would have been basically impossible. It was not possible for just an ordinary American on a whim to take a trip to Russia. Nor was it possible for an ordinary Russian to, uh, like, immigrate to the United States. It, just, it was a very difficult thing to do, and it, it would have been impossible for us to proceed in our relationship. And certainly if we were married, it would have made it very difficult for us to do things like go see her family. Um, and so a as we watch um, some of the drama between uh, our, our countries play out, 
um, there's, there's been a, a, a lot of fear and anxiety in both of us, but in particular in her because she's more directly um, connected because she's here in the States and her family's back in Russia, um, around the question of what, what would happen if uh, relations did continue to get worse to the point where it'd be hard for us. We'd have to choose kind of where we want to live um, and which family do we want to be able to see. So it, 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 uh, last week, last Thursday, um, they announced that they were shutting down the St. Petersburg uh, consulate, the United States consulate there. And we had some paperwork that was in process at that consulate, which we now have to start over, and it's going to take eight months. It was supposed, we were supposed to be finished this week, and now we had to, we had to restart it. It's going to take eight more months. Um, so uh, she was just having, like, a really, a really tough day, and so uh, Neil very graciously allowed me to... Um, Miss challenge last week. So that's why I wasn't there last week. So if you want to know how you can be um, praying for, for me and my family, um, you know, if you want to pray big, you can pray that, like, Vladimir Putin becomes a Christian or something. Or, uh, that would be, like, the best case scenario. And, uh, but uh, it, just pray for, for some of the uh, relationships for our country, our countries to not continue to get worse, for peace to kind of um, grow in our, in our world and uh, in particular, just, just pray for us as we walk through the anxieties that are, are caused by that. Um, I'd appreciate, we both would appreciate prayer. Um, we're both excited for Thon, too. My wife's going to come and walk beside me at Thon on Saturday. Very exciting. Yeah, Thon, are you guys pumped for, for Thon on Saturday? Yeah, all right. Yeah, I finally, uh, I got some, some money coming through finally. I got some donations, so I, I didn't think anyone was going to donate to me. But yeah, people are donating. It's going to be great. We're going to raise money to send these people overseas. Who's going overseas this summer? Awesome. Yeah, so exciting. So remember, when we're walking, as we're raising money for this, there's still time to raise money for this. As you're raising money for this, what are you raising money for? It's not just uh, so that these students can go, your friends can go, and have a great summer vacation in Germany or, you know, wherever, Canada. You know, great summer vacation in Canada. Uh, (laughs) What are we raising money for? It's so that the cause of the gospel can go forth with power, right? So that more people can come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be saved for eternity. That's what we're walking or blading or uh, biking or whatever. Is anyone rollerblading? I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, someone's rollerblading? That's awesome. I haven't rollerbladed since the 90s. (laughs) Seriously, I had rollerblades in the 90s. Uh, I didn't even know they still existed, but that's great if you're into rollerblading. Um, so uh, let's go on. Let's talk about our series. We've been doing this series uh, uh, that we started two weeks ago on Colossians 3 and 4 called The Resurrected Life. Uh, so two weeks ago, Jeremy took us through, kind of opened up this series for us. And then last week, uh, Neil did a great um, bit on putting off some things. Uh, so I'm going to continue that series tonight. Uh, but before we do, uh, you can go into my one more stage. So this is, this is kind of like the foundation. This is like the beginning of that section. So if you, if you get your Bibles open to Colossians 3, you'll see that the beginning of this whole section that we're looking at starts with this statement, if then you have been raised with Christ. And this is the statement, this is the idea that shapes this entire series, in my opinion. That's why we're calling it the resurrected life. What we're doing is we're exploring the implications of our resurrection with Jesus Christ. Hence, the beginning, if. If this is true, 
then this is true. Then do this. There's a whole set of consequences that flow from this if statement. Does that make sense? So Jeremy talked about some of kind of like our, the attitudes and motivations and our, our new hopes that emerge out of this if statement. If we have been raised with Christ, then we have these motivations. We have these hopes. And then uh, kind of sandwiched around Easter, which I think was very appropriate. I don't, I don't, I don't think it was planned that way, but I, it, it worked out very nicely that way. We have Neil's talk last week in which he talked about putting off things. And then my talk tonight in which we're going to talk about putting on things. And why is that appropriate? I think that um, there is, a, there is the, the idea that is at the heart of this series is an idea that is um, a, a recurring theme in the New Testament in which uh, it, it, we, we often make reference to. So I, I want to walk through this recurring idea through looking at it in, from three different angles. Okay? The first angle is, you can go to the next slide there. The first angle, angle is this metaphor that Jesus uses in John 3. So there's a very famous encounter he has at night with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and talks to him. And says, well, we know that you are a teacher who is from God. And then Jesus kind of out of nowhere says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, that was out of nowhere. <laughs> we didn't actually ask about that, but thank you for telling me that. Uh, so Jesus used, then repeats this, this metaphor, this idea, this like word picture. If you want to enter, if you want to become a part of God's kingdom... You have to be reborn. You've been born once of the flesh, of the body. But now you have to be born a second time, anew. If you remember the passage, Nicodemus has that great response of like, can't, how, do I have to go back into my mother's womb and come out again? A little too literal there, Nicodemus. Okay, the second uh, a- angle that we're going to examine that, from this is our, our first memory verse, I, I don't know if this was your actual first memory verse, but certainly as we memorize scripture here in Challenge, where, where do we often start? 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone know 2 Corinthians 5.17? Oh, if you don't need, this is like one of the verses, you can just take this one verse, forget about memorizing anything else. I'm, not, I'm just kidding, memorize other things. But this is a great encapsulating verse. It captures the whole of what happens to us in our encounter with Jesus Christ when we become Christians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old is gone. And something new has come about. So Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Our third angle can't remember what it is. Oh, the main Christian ritual. Okay, the very main Christian ritual. Uh, what is the, the main Christian ritual? For, for entrance, if you want to become a Christian, what is the, the, the ritual that we make you go through? Baptism, Baptism yeah. Now, we're, 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 you know, if you grew up, like, in a Christian country, um, you know, you're probably, or if you grew up in the church, you're like, baptism is kind of, you know, a normal thing. You don't really think too hard about it. Um, I was watching this documentary on, on Netflix called Wild Wild Country, about this, like, religious cult in Oregon, which, by the way, just came out. I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. Uh, the, the show, not the cult. <laughs> Thank you. 
And they have these, like, religious practices in this cult that are just like, those are so bizarre. Those are so weird. But then as I was, as I was preparing this talk, um, I was thinking, like, okay, baptism. Like, okay, you want to join my religion? You do? Okay, we'll go down to a river, and I'm going to pretend to drown you. <laughs> like, if, if you're, like, fresh to Christianity, that's a little bit weird, right? A little bit of an odd thing. Uh, however, um, if we can kind of try and come at it with, with fresh eyes and see what it's actually symbolizing to us, that's kind of what's happening there. We're actually drowning. The, the, when we go under the water, uh, as Paul says in Romans 6, we're being joined to Christ's death. We're actually dying under the water, being buried with him. And then the person that comes out of the water is new. It's a new person. That's the symbology there. So what, what are all three of these little angles getting at here? All three of them are saying that if you are in Christ, then something new, something brand new, irrevocable, unchangeable, and permanent has happened to you. You have been changed, reborn, and made new in a way that can never be taken away and that changes you. If anyone is in Christ, he's reborn, a new creation. Now, um, to return to the um, story about, about me and my wife, you thought that was just a random story, right? It was a little bit of an illustration. I thought of a way to tie it into my main talk. Uh, you know, Tanya and I are both uh, followers of Jesus, right? We're both Christians. Yes, I, I married a Christian. <laughs> I advise doing that. Uh, Tanya and I are both followers of Jesus. Um, we've both been reborn and remade. When we decided that Jesus was going to be Lord of our life, through the symbology of baptism, we were made into new people. And we join by being made into, the, into a new person, by being joined to the body of Christ, we had a connection with Christians around the world that is closer, more intimate, more one than any sort of earthly tie that we can have. So I am an American and she is Russian. Yet in Christ, we are connected more closely than I am with a fellow American, or she is with a fellow American. Now, that does not mean that, there, that that identity, that old person, does not have an ongoing influence in her life. Okay? If she goes to her immigration interview and just says, oh, I'm a Christian, <laughs> I'm not a Russian anymore, it doesn't work, <laughs> unfortunately. Not only so, but there, there are aspects of that old identity that are, like, valuable, right? Like, she wants to teach our, our kids, the kids that we may have one day, Lord willing, about, like, what it means to be Russian. That's not entirely a bad thing. So, though we have this new, brand new identity, we still live in a world in which there are effects, ongoing effects, of um, the old person that we were. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, what, what's next here? Our text. Okay, good, our text. Let's get into it. So this is our uh, text for tonight. This is Colossians 3, 12 through 14. 
I'll read it and then I'll pray. I did one of those things where I had like a really long introduction before I prayed. But I will pray and then we'll get into the text. Okay, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, it's a short passage, so I'm going to read it one more time. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, I'll pray. Father, we come before you in need. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. Lord, unless you teach us, we are unable to comprehend spiritual things rightly. Lord, we want to learn from you, not from my human wisdom, Certainly not from the influence of the wisdom that exists in the world. But God, we want to come and understand you as you are. We want to listen to what you have said about us through your servant, Paul. Lord, teach us tonight. Transform us tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's um, briefly, in three points, like kind of analyze this text, go through it really quickly. Uh, so first of all, what do we see first is a passage breakdown. The one in Christ is a new identity. So that's the point that I was hammering over and over again in my intro. The, uh, and that is stated very clearly here right at the beginning of the, of the text. Put on then as God's chosen ones. So the, the uh, command that is to come uh, is, is begun with a restatement of the new identity that the Christian has. Okay, second. The commands that are to come flow in some way from this new identity. So the new identity that we have produces in us the transformation that these commands encourage and point us toward. So that is the order we have to think of it with. We have our new identity. This new identity inevitably, as a natural result, produces transformation in us. And then third, we are commanded to participate in this transformation. So these are commands that are given to us here in this passage, right? Paul says, do this, do this, do this, do this. It would be easy... If we, if we miss part of this, to, to misinterpret our text. There are two ways that we could misinterpret our text. First of all, we could just harp on the new identity. I could tell you everything about the new identity. But we could miss that Paul is commanding us in the name of Jesus to change things, to obey and to do things. This new identity produces something in us, calls us into action. The second way we could misinterpret our text is if we focus exclusively 
and his commands to do. If I say this, if you want to be a good Christian, then do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. You're missing where it comes from. The force of the command, the power that is within it. Yes? So to begin with, what does this passage say about our new identity? What does it say about us as we are in Christ? There are, there are three things. First of all, he says, put, then, put on then as God's chosen people. If you are in Christ, then you are chosen by him. Now, uh, I don't want to get into a debate about predestination tonight. Uh, some people, when they hear the word chosen, they immediately get tense and get ready for a debate on, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I, I do want to point out that the text does say that <laughs> we are God's chosen people. In some way, God chose us. If you belong to him, then God focused activity on your behalf. He did something for you. He sent people to you. I remember the day when I was in my dorm room as a sophomore, and a guy came up to me and invited me to a Bible study. God sent that guy to do that to me. I'm serious. If, that, if, if, if Peter had not invited me to that Bible study, I wouldn't have gone to it. I didn't want to go to Bible studies then. If you are in Christ, then God has focused effort on you. He has made plans for you. He has sent people into your lives, whether they're your parents or roommates or friends, neighbors, relatives. People have been sent to you. God chose you. Consider the state that you were in when he did that. He didn't do that. He didn't look down at you and say, that guy's got promise. He looks like he could be a good Christian. Time to send someone his way. No. God did that when you were dead in your sins, when you were rebellious against him, when you rejected him, when you deserved nothing from him except death, punishment, and hell. That's when God chose you. If you are in Christ, you are chosen. Think of the particularity of that. In the vastness of the universe, God saw you and chose you. Second thing that it says. You are holy. The new believer is holy. Now this is one of my favorite contradictions in the New Testament. What are, we, uh, what are the commands that Paul is giving here? He's trying to sanctify us, right? He's encouraging us to become more holy. What, what a terrible way to start that command by saying that we already are holy. Do you get that? Like, go and become more holy, and yet you already are holy. How can that be so? And in fact, we see this contradiction throughout the writings of Paul. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he says to the church in Corinth, those that are saints and who are becoming saints. It's the same group of people. 
both saints and becoming saints. What does this mean? How is it possible that we who are being encouraged towards holiness can be regarded as though we were already holy? This is the gospel. In Jesus Christ, who was perfect, we stand. So God accepts us, justifies us, puts us into his presence at his right hand, not because we have become holy, but because by his grace, he has transferred the holiness of Christ to us. He has counted it as though it were ours. So though we are sinners who are becoming more holy by the power of the Holy Spirit through the effort of our lives, yet in Christ we are as holy as we need to be and more holy than we ever could possibly be on our own. This is the foundation of our standing before God. Why does God accept us? Why can he have a relationship with us? Is because we are already holy for all time. This is why Paul addresses them as holy. So you, if you are in Christ, then none of your efforts of sanctification, none of the alterations of your behavior, no effort to become more and more like Jesus will add to or detract from one bit of your standing before God. You are holy now before him. Whatever our motivation is for growing in our holiness in our, in our daily life, it is not to gain God's pleasure. It is not to be more accepted with him. It is not to have deeper relationship with him. It's, we are now as fully in his presence as we can be. And unless we understand that, we have no foundation to grow in our holiness. Because it is only as people that are solid in our understanding of our relationship with Jesus that we are enabled to, by the power of the Spirit, grow with his help. Okay, I went, I went off there a little bit longer than I was planning to, but it's a very important point. If you are in Christ, your identity now, you are chosen by him, and you are holy before him. And so whatever your efforts are in sanctification, they are not to establish your holiness before God. By the way, that was the whole purpose of the Protestant Reformation. What I just said. Okay. <coughs> okay. Uh, also, I should say one more thing. The substance of all, like, fallen Christian religion, every time that there's like a Christian group that has fallen short of the gospel is because they have changed that. They have said that you need to do things in order to stay in good standing with God. So it's very important. Anyway, okay. The third thing, identity of the new believer, beloved. Oh, this is a good one, right? God's beloved. You know, I, one of my one of the great books of the New Testament is the, the Gospel of John. And one of the best parts about it is that whenever he refers to himself, he calls himself the beloved disciple. <laughs> uh, isn't that great? Like if you were writing the Bible, you could just like write whatever you wanted. By the way, I was, I, I was, I was in church 
And the pastor pointed, I never noticed this before, but he pointed out, um, it was the Easter service, that in, in John's account of uh, the resurrection, he specifically mentions that he's faster than Peter. In it. <laughs> uh, such a great little detail uh, that John thought it was very important that he mentioned that he was faster than Peter. Anyway, um, so, <coughs> excuse me, I'm laughing, started laughing, but bad idea. Uh, John always refers to himself as the beloved disciple. And indeed, if we are wise, if we understand our identity as Christians, as we should, then we too would know that we are the beloved disciple of Jesus. As we are now. Not at some future point when we become more lovable, but as you are now. In all your faults, all the things about you that maybe only you know, or maybe other people know that you don't know, that make you unlovable. <laughs> Making me laugh. Okay, let me repeat that. In all the things about you that you know about that make you unlovable, don't make you, like, you are still God's beloved. Right now, at this moment. If we were to understand who we are in Christ Jesus, then we have to know what God has said about us. And this is what he says about us. You are my beloved. On you I have focused the fullness of my divine love. As you are now. With every fault, every mistake, every weakness. And every sin that you commit on a daily basis. This does not alter or change the depth, the breadth, the width, the duration, the character, the quality of my love for you. If we are to grow in holiness, we have to be centered in this divine identity. Chosen, holy, and beloved. Okay. There you go. There's your identity in Christ. So uh, what the, the, the thrust of this passage is he says, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, as you are that, then do this. And what is it that he tells us to do? Put on compassionate hearts. <clears throat> Put on compassionate hearts. Now, the, that, the compassionate hearts is kind of the main thing that's put on. And then uh, the things below it that uh, uh, kind of flow out of that compassionate heart. <clears throat> so uh, we, we have to kind of uh, try and understand, as we, as we walk through um, this idea of putting on a compassionate heart, we have to understand how it flows out of the new identity that um, God has given us, that we have in Christ. Okay? So first, what is compassion? What is a compassion? I love taking these, like, Christian-y words that we say all the time and, like, asking ourselves, but what, what does it actually mean? And we say it a lot, but can we define what it means? I think one of the, one of the best um, ways to think about compassion, uh, when I was uh, in fifth grade, I got into my first and only fight. So I'm, I'm not a very violent person. 
I, I never have been, um, partly because I was pretty short all my life, but um, also because I'm not a very violent person, although I have been taking kickboxing, kickboxing classes lately, so self-defense, been fun, getting shape. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I got in my first and only fight. So I used to be a big-time baller. I was uh, sure I was going to be in the NBA when I grew up. Uh, and I was on my fifth-grade basketball team, and we got into a very close game, and we lost. And we lost because I missed, the, like, a game-winning shot. And I was so mad. And that evening, I went to our, like, little fifth-grade church youth group that the church I went to. It was a huge church, so there was, uh, like, several hundred kids there. And um, I had a basketball, and I was trying to play on a hoop. And this guy that was a year older than me came over and he grabbed my basketball and he kicked it. And I was like, it was JT. <laughs> JT was like kind of a bit of a bully. So I, I got kind of mad at him and I kind of went at him, but I didn't really know how to fight. I'd never gotten any fights before. So I was kind of like, you know, <laughs> I tried to kick him. And then we very quickly got broken up and, um, uh, we went our separate ways. And then, like, an hour later, a after youth group was over, I was skating around. I was talking to somebody, and JT came up behind me, and he put one leg around, around me like that, and he pushed me. And went <laughs> sprawling on the ground, and he ran away. And I was so mad. JT. The worst. The worst. <laughs> so, uh... I got so mad that I started, I started to kind of cry, and I was really, then I was even more mad that I was crying because it was, like, embarrassing that I was crying. And I got into the car. I was driving home, and um, my dad, you know, my dad picked me up. He asked what happened. I told him what happened. And then um, my dad was like, Stephen, do you, know, do you know who JT's dad is? And I said, I don't know who JT's dad is. He's like, JT's dad is in jail. Said his mom is an alcoholic. JT's already been in trouble multiple times. And it's almost certainly because he doesn't have a dad at home. <clears throat> and I think at the time I was kind of like, who cares? So what? <laughs> uh, but. Uh, you know, that, that conversation with my dad kind of stuck in my brain. I thought about it more. And um, what, what, what was kind of born in me that day, I think what, what the realization that my dad helped me come to was that this person, JT, that I had depersonalized, that I had made into something that existed merely externally from me, under which I could project whatever I wanted to project, was actually a complex interior life-driven person who had experiences and fears and emotions in the same way that I did. And that as a result of the ways that I had been blessed and he had not been blessed, he responded to situations differently than I did. And what my dad was trying to tell me was that I needed to forgive him and it, it was probably wrong for me to have gotten mad at him. <clears throat> I didn't accept that in fifth grade, but later I did. Now, what is compassion? I think compassion is the ability 
to understand another person as you would understand yourself. To know that another person has experiences, dreams, hopes, fears, disappointments, that the choices they make are as a result of the accumulation of those experiences and emotions, and that the things that they have been led into, if I had gone through the same things, perhaps I too would be where they were. Compassion, therefore, is, is like an ability to empathize and to understand and to modulate the way I response, the way I respond, excuse me, in accordance with that understanding that I've gained of the other person. <clears throat> it's a, a famous uh, saying, it's been attributed to many people, I couldn't find out who originally said it, but it says, to know all is to forgive all. You ever heard that? That's the heart of compassion. Now, where does compassion come from? How do we understand this? I think for the Christian, compassion comes from two places. First of all, compassion comes from understanding how unworthy we are of every blessing that we've been given. And I'm referring here not just to the blessings of our birth, the blessings of the various opportunities that we've been given, the privileges that we've received. Some of us have had many privileges we've been born with, others fewer, but all of us have many. For the Christian, he knows that every one of those privileges is an act of divine grace because we are sinners. Because we deserve nothing. In rejecting God, we have made ourselves worthy only of hell. And whatever he gives beyond that, every breath he gives beyond that is a mercy. And I don't deserve it. I don't deserve the parents I had. I don't deserve any of the things I've received. And most of all, we as Christians know that we do not merit the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Because you see, there is nothing further from the depths of hell that we deserve than the privilege of adoption into God's family and the glorious future of heaven. The gap between those two is larger than anything that exists. And that's what we've been given in Jesus Christ. We do not deserve that. Out of that, out of that should come compassion. Compassion for those that have not that gift, that have not that privilege. They deserve it no less than I do. I have nothing over them. I have nothing over any of you. And therefore, every fault that you have, every hurt that you do me, I can see it in light of that. 
I can have compassion with you. Know that you are imperfect as I am imperfect. That is where compassion comes from for the Christian. I mentioned a second place that compassion comes from. I think compassion also comes from the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So I am free to be wronged. If I, if, if I do not know Jesus, then I need to get everything that I can out of this life. I need to be as happy here as I possibly can be. Because after this, nothing. But in Christ, I have the title to an eternal domain in which I will live the rest of my days. And therefore, I need nothing from this earth. Therefore, I am free when people wrong me to forgive. I am free to show compassion on people. Does that make sense? That's what compassion comes from. What does compassion produce? Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, I, I was struck as I was preparing this talk that all, all these kind of things are like character qualities that we find really attractive in other people, right? When people show compassion on us, it's a very attractive thing. When people are humble, it's a very attractive thing. Communities that are loving are like exalted, right? We value them. If all these things are so valuable, we, we understand them. But why are they so hard to do? Why does Paul need to command us to do them? For all these things are unnatural. All of them are counter. Although they are attractive, they're mainly attractive when other people do them. We ourselves did not want to act in this way. <clears throat> what is kindness? I'll go briefly through these four and define them briefly. Kindness is uh, acts of love. So kindness has an, an, an active thrust to it. When I'm kind to somebody, it means I've done something for their good, something to benefit them. Patience is a passive act of love. So if kindness is like an active act of love, patience is like a passive act of love. It's enduring something from somebody else. <clears throat> Humility is a proper understanding of ourselves. And uh, meekness is uh, a sort of coming before other people without asking anything of them. It's not demanding things from other people. All of these things flow from compassion. They're produced by it. Okay, briefly through our last two points. Paul's example of compassion, he says, uh, show forbearance. In other words, forgive other people. When people do wrong to you, forgive them. This is an act of compassion within a community. I've already talked about that. And then finally, uh, Paul's conclusion. He says, over all of this, over all these actions, put love. The love which binds them all together. All this compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, 
all of this is a consequence of the identity that we have. If we are beloved, then we are free to love. So how do we go about applying this passage? Uh, this was kind of a, uh, a difficult uh, thing to resolve here. Because I, I think when I talk about compassion and love and everything, like, it's hard to make a, an application that is not too broad, but also not too particular, right? So if my, our application is um, have compassionate heart, it's like be compassionate. You're like, of course. Well, I, you know, in general, I was already trying to be a loving and compassionate person. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I could get, you know, to go to bog down in the particularities of how to apply this. It'd give you, um, you know, we could have thousands of examples of how to be more loving and more kind in your daily life. So let me, let me um, constant focus our application on uh, the transformation that I think will produce this, okay? Because it's where Paul starts. So our application then is to understand ourselves in the way that Paul instructs us to. This is generally where application starts for Paul. The first word of application that occurs in the book of Romans, for example, is about identity. It says, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. That's the first word of application. Consider yourself, think of yourself in a certain way. So if we are to grow in compassion and love, the first thing is that we must understand the holiness that we have, the way that God has chosen us, and the belovedness in which we already live. Flowing out of this will come our compassion. Flowing out of this will be humility. Now, that does not mean that we, we don't consciously and deliberately think through how to apply these things in our lives. But it begins with the transformation of how we can think about ourselves, how we consider ourselves. Amen? All right, let me pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the new identity that we have in you, Lord. God, I pray that everyone here, Lord, if they are not in Christ, God, that they would receive from you the gift of forgiveness and new life. Lord, if we are, I, I pray that we would remember who we are in you. I pray that the power of transformation in the gospel, the power of our resurrected life in you, would produce in us these changes. And Lord, lead us into how to apply this in our personal lives. But God, above all, change our perspective. Change the way we think. That we may know you and that we may walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen.